Hi guys and welcome to episode two of the Live Motocross podcast. Uh, I'm Sophie McGinn and joining me today is Darren Bartholomew, one of my old pals and also one of the UK's best motocross racers, Sean Simpson. Now just bear with us a little bit on the audio on this as it was recorded through the internet during the lockdown, uh, but I hope you enjoy. Darren, where are you? Hey, so thanks, guys. How are you all well in the uh, current environment that we are? Um, yeah, just really pleased to get up live on board again with another uh, podcast as well, episode two. Thank you for guesting mm-hmm. me in. Really excited to be talking all sorts, as you can imagine, in the downtime that we've had, unfortunately, with the racing. So uh, just looking to get really involved into talking motocross at long last again. That's it. Also joining us on the podcast this week, we have uh, British motorcycle racer, Sean Simpson. Hi, guys. How's things? Yeah, really cool, mate. Looking forward to uh, getting some gossip off you. Really, uh, we've got a few uh, questions on the go for you, so uh, hopefully you're into it. Yeah, this is the first time that I've I've recorded a podcast in this way, so looking forward to just chatting, uh, chatting dirt bikes and seeing what we can come up with for you guys listening. Something a little bit different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things been going on re- recently. You know, a lot more time spent indoors. And uh, mm-hmm. as you say, we've not been out on track. So it's, uh, yeah, everything's coming new to me at the moment. But we're just rolling with it and seeing what we can, what we can, you know, sort of do on social media and things like this. Just to keep everyone sort of motivated and uh, try and give them their uh, motocross fix, as it were. Um, Darren, just a quick one as well. Are you trying to like move house or shuffle papers or what's going on? I, I'm not doing anything anymore. <laughs> no, you, you told me off earlier. So I literally, I'm like, I'm frozen still. Good. Not doing anything. There's quite an echo. You're not on the phone. <laughs> no, 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 mate. No, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you know if I'm off. I'm in my, I'm actually in my office at work, if I'm honest. So I'm just kind of locked myself in here because the boys are playing outside on the, on the bike. So uh, I've shut myself down. So I uh, apologize for that from that. <laughs> um, so one of the main reasons, Sean, why we wanted to bring you onto the podcast. Um, obviously, you've been in the industry for, for quite a while now. Um, and people sort of are getting on board with your team and bits and bobs that we'll, we'll touch on later. Um, but I just wanted to hear from you sort of how you got into racing, where it all began really with your career. Okay. Well, um, it's a long story because I'm 32 now, so <laughs> there, it could, could be a while getting going. But the basics of, of how I sort of got into motocross is, you know, it's no surprise to many people that know me that my dad's been a massive part of my career. And the reason that I got mm-hmm. into motocross was not just because I really enjoyed riding motocross but just I got the bug from my dad so my dad raced uh, world championship motocross for over 10 years Um, he's Mm -hmm. three-time Scottish champion he done British championships you know numerous French international races so he probably raced for over 30 years himself Um, Mm -hmm. he was a bit of a late burner he he didn't really start racing himself till he was um, you know 17 or 18 got his first bike when I think he was you know 16 when he just started working and, um, you know, so I, I grew up watching him ride and um, naturally when I was four years old and you know, I was shown enough interest because my dad's not the type of guy to just, you know, go out and buy a bike and say, yeah, you know, have a crack, see how, see how you get on. He was, mm-hmm. he was always sort of, he would make sure we were interested enough to go and spend that amount of money um, to then you know, see if we see if we liked it. So, I got my first bike when I was four years old, uh, PW50 Yamaha, as I'm sure many people um, grew up grew up yep. riding, especially in my <laughs> era. These days, we've got um, Ossets and electric bikes, which are obviously great. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I was just more than happy to get on a motocross bike and start, you know, turning some wheels, and uh, just got the bug straight away from that. So. Going quickly through my youth career, I didn't actually start racing until I was 13 um, properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd done a few races when I was, um, my first race was actually in Orkney at the beach race. 
1997 when I was nine years mm-hmm. old. And then um, I'd done two or three more races, a winter championship um, close to home. And um, then I'd done my first, you know, British championship um, season. So I just went straight in at 13 years old to doing British championships. It was mad, really. And that's quite... Yeah, that's quite late, really, because obviously kids nowadays, they can start from six upwards. So how was that you getting thrown in the deep end at 13? Well, I think it was just my dad, just the way my dad brought me up, because he was like, <laughs> well, I, I don't really want you racing because, you know, I'm still racing. So he he wanted the mm-hmm. weekends for himself. And, you know, back in those days, the meetings that we were going off to British championships and Scottish championships, they didn't have any sort of kids classes or anything, you know, running alongside them. So my dad wanted to mm-hmm. continue racing and he was still, you know, he was still ripping around. Um, we went to Ireland on Saturdays, um, Northern Ireland, and then we come back across and race in, in the UK on Sunday. So we were flat out, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I'd done so much riding through the week. So every day after school, I'd get back, I'd ride two or three times a week after school. On the weekends that mm-hmm. we weren't racing with my dad, I would be out riding with him, practicing, training. So I was like, I was pretty serious. I just never done any racing because we were away doing my dad's races. So when he was yeah. racing, I would help him change tires, fuel the bike up for him, scrape the mud off with a scraper and, you know, just help prep his goggles. And, you know, obviously at the same time, my brother was doing all that with us because, you know, it's myself and my brother and my mom and dad, we were all just packed up in a in a transit van and we were off racing. So when mm-hmm. when I got chucked in at the deep end, it wasn't so much the deep end for me because we, we sort of done yeah. a calculation or my dad had and like he knew I had the speed to to be yeah. you know somewhere in the top 15 let's say in in the British Youth Championship so I was riding an 85 cc Honda um in my first season um and mm-hmm. to be honest that it was you know we just went to Finningley was my first ever British Championship race and I think I come away with a fourth or a fifth overall and it was you know it was yeah. really really quite interesting just to to see that you know a sort of unconventional approach you know it's a lot of guys come through the autos through the 65s into the 80s and like my, my dad mm-hmm. just didn't really agree with that because obviously he was riding but then he sort of thought that you know when you're young you're you're you know your bones you're growing you're not really as strong to like hang on to the bike he just thought I might get too excited and end up injuring myself which like we all do. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> like you could then say, well, you know, it didn't work out for you later in your career because, you, you know, I have had a lot of injuries. Um, you know, I've had mm-hmm. a long career, but I have had quite a few injuries. So, but I, I do, I definitely feel like it gave me the want to race. And if I'd got to 13 mm-hmm. and that was start, starting to tail off, my dad would have probably said, well, you, you're not really wanting to go racing. So like mm-hmm. it was it was all on my shoulders really. Like I had to ki- I had to pack my own kit bag, wash my own bike, you know, service my own bike, put fuel in it, load it into the van. Like there was nothing given to me. And it was, you know, I, yeah. I really respect that now because you see so many young guys getting ha- these things handed to them on a plate. And then after a mm-hmm. weekend's racing and like the worst conditions imaginable, they, they sort of come back and... Um, their mum and dad's cleaning everything up and they're playing xbox you know that that just would not yeah. fly with me at all or definitely not with my dad <laughs> so you know just going from there i done um one season in uh the 85 cc class then i done two seasons in the 125 cc class and then i done my first mm-hmm. year at british championship level when i was 16 um on a 125 ktm for uh, Tim Chambers that was Chambers KTM back in those days and that's that's the yeah. year I done my first Grand Prix at Isle of Wight so going from my first race to my first Grand Prix was like pretty much three years <laughs> and, and that was it we were I finished my exams on uh, I think it was a Friday afternoon I had physics exam and then uh, left yeah. school that afternoon got on a flight with my mum down to Isle of Wight which was you know unconventional for me as well because normally would be in the back of the van but because of my exams I had to just you know pack everything up with my mum and then my dad and my brother drove down on I think the Thursday and me and my mum arrived and I sort of felt like an absolute superstar you know arriving (laughs) arriving on the Friday and uh, getting to the track and then Saturday qualifying you know I never I never qualified so that was it (laughs) the dream the dream was over for that weekend but the want was still there (laughs) The want was still there and, 
you know, my, my dad's just never let that affect us. You know, he, he would say like, you know, this is big races. There's a lot of, you know, this is the best guys in the world. And, you know, we just went home and, you know, I just felt like even just going to that race brought me on half a second a lap because when I was going out practicing, I was just pushing that a little bit harder. And then the next one we mm-hmm. went to, um, I, I was um, second reserve in Bally Kelly in Ireland that same year. And uh, so that mm-hmm. was even closer. I didn't, didn't actually make the event, but, um, you know, I was second reserve, so that was something. And then we got the chance to go to South Africa later that year because a, a rider in the, the Chambers team had got injured. And that was it. You know, I, I scored my first points at South Africa and then then start 16 years of Grand Prix racing for me. So it, uh, it's mm-hmm. hard to, to really understand where that times went. So just off the back of that then, Sean, for your youth career, as it were then, um, and, and obviously I completely get that, what your dad was going to do, obviously not the pushy schoolboy dad or anything like that. Yeah. So nice to hear that he's put thought into it. I mean, I'm the same with my boys now. I mean, you know, come the day they ask me for a bike, I'll obviously do it in a heartbeat. But up until then, I don't want to push. It's their decision, not mine. I don't yeah. want to force it up on them. And I think that's absolutely perfect. But Obviously, back in the day, obviously, in your youth career up in Scotland, what tracks did you ride up there, not having anything to do with Scottish motocross, of course? Who were you, Who did you race against week in, week out? I mean, who was the competition for you then? Um, a good question. I think, well, we were very, very, very fortunate that, you know, obviously, even in my dad's um, career, you know, having a home track was obviously everyone's goal. And it's always been like a, a goal of my dad to have our own bit of land to, to actually ride and, and practice on. And uh, we didn't have any land at our house that we could, um, you know, sort of ride. But like 500 uh, yards up the road from our house, we, we sort of talked to the landowner and they sort of gave us permission to ride on a piece of set-aside land. And um, that was just pretty much the best thing that could have ever happened for us because, you know, we made a small track i think it started off around a 45 second lap time but we you know we didn't care i just do like a million laps <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't matter <laughs> to me um and we just sort of carved out a little track and then the year after that we made it you know 15 seconds longer so it was up to a minute and then we, the year after that we, we extended it again where it was up to about a minute and a half and you know that was just an absolute godsend for us because get home from school get the school clothes off, get the motocross gear on, up the road, and, you know, we could do three, three, four motos in an afternoon and evening, come back, service the bikes up, and we'd be ready for the next day. There wasn't any of this, you know, loading up into a van and heading away off riding and stuff like that because that's major time and effort and money for your parents. Mm-hmm. And my mum, she worked afternoons because she worked with the blood transfusion, so she's off out everywhere taking blood from people and, and helping in that way. And then my dad, he had a, a car uh, mechanic business that he ran from home which was off the end of our house and he had a couple of car ramps in there and he would do MOT repairs and welding and and all sorts of stuff in there so just servicing and all that so if he was sort of tight for time he would say look give me a hand with these cars you know we were taking wheels off and checking brake fluids and all sorts you know from like seven eight years old and then he would say right shut the door up to the track few motos and then back so it was just you know people who don't have that possibility or parents who are willing to take them to a track two or three times a week, mm-hmm. you just fast fast track yourself so much in those years up to a level whereby, you know, I read a book once and it said to get good at something, you have to put hours into it. So if that's playing chess or getting good at golf or riding a motorcycle, it's all about hours. And like by the time mm-hmm. I was 15 years old, I had done you know, five, six times as many hours as some of the people I was racing against. So it was only natural that you could see why I was riding so good, you know, and being so young. And like to answer your question about who did I race against, um, the guy, the only guy that I can really think that's current at the moment still racing is Tony Craig. Um, he was one of my sort of arch nemesis when we were, um, when we were sort of, <laughs> Um, coming through the ranks and Tony was always a bit better than me because he'd he'd sort of um 
road through the 65s, 85s, big wheels, you know, right the way through back mm-hmm. when it was even 100 cc's. And um, Tony had his hours up as well. So it was really, really good to race against him because, you know, sometimes we were a lap in front of everyone else. But, you know, we would have such great battles and, you know, occasionally I could beat him. You know, sometimes he'd beat me and it would become quite a big rivalry just when we were racing, you know, around home. But um, other than that, you know, we have half a dozen tracks within an hour of where we live. Um, You know, that was enough. You know, it wasn't like these days where people say oh you know we're heading to this track two and a half hours away and we're heading up to fat cats at the weekend five hour drive you know that would just not mm-hmm. happen with my dad he was like you know you'll go go down to that stubble field on the weekend and we'll carve a track in and that'll do us you know we're not heading out too far you know it was just let's get some hours <laughs> in do some proper riding and and not you know there's a lot of tracks these days in the uk i'm not slagging it at all because you know you, you have to you know move with the times and safety is a massive aspect but like sessions on a track they just kill me you know if you go to a track and it's a 20 minute session it just you know I, I can't handle that but that's part of the UK you know practice scene and I'm I suppose in a way I'm sort of fortunate that I've been in Belgium and not been in sort of stuck into that groove but you, know, you have to get out there's no question there's no escape in it and um, whether it's sessions or not you've just got to get out and, and get your motors done and and you know get those hours up. This is probably one of the most interesting questions I think we've got for you Sean uh, what is your most memorable race from over the years? Um, funny you should say that because we, we just <laughs> dropped uh, another one of my DIY YouTube videos today. So yeah, I did see that. Yeah, on there. Um, it's quite obvious. Um, it's on there. So I better give the same answer. Otherwise, people are going to say, well, you said that on one and that on another. <laughs> um, it's, it has to be my first ever world championship GP overall. And that was at, at mm-hmm. a track called Lerop in Holland. And that was in 2013. So a brief, like, little catch-up on 2013 for me. Um, it was one of the toughest years of my life, um, career-wise anyway, um, mm-hmm. not personally. But um, I started the year off with Factory TM, which is an Italian brand of motorcycle. And, you know, things look good. Um, I really enjoyed riding the bike on hard pack. Um, we really struggled to get it to, to work in sand. It just something mm-hmm. with the chassis just wasn't working right with me. And, you know, the, the, the longer my careers went on, the more fussy I've got with setting up my bike. And, you know, I'll hold my hands up and say, if it's if it's not working right for me, then I, I just can't twist the throttle as much as I want to. And therefore, my mm-hmm. results sort of suffer. Um, and that year, we just really struggled. Uh, struggled. So halfway through the year, we parted company, uh, myself and TM. And I was in this point in the season where I didn't have a bike, I didn't have a team, um, and the race calendar obviously doesn't stop for anyone. So um, mm-hmm. I come to an agreement with JK Yamaha um, to, you know, get a couple of bikes that they had, you know, rolling around at their, you know, in the back of their van, and uh, we turned up and we raced the last five or six races, and. Um, things were okay to start with but the bike just wasn't set up properly but one weekend we got my brother um, involved he got WP suspension on Yamaha which you know back in 2013 was quite a revelation you know no one had seen WP Mm -hmm. suspension on a Japanese bike so we turned up with that and wow that was great you know I improved my results a little bit and uh, I still wasn't happy with the power on the bike so we worked very hard with my engine tuner John Vollenberg in Holland and, you know, from the moment we got that combination of suspension, engine and rider being happy, you know, the last three races of the season just got better and better. Um, I think I went 5-5 five, five at Matterley Basin. Um, I think I went 5-6 in Belgium at Bastogne or something like that. And then we came to Lerop and everyone knows, or since that time, everyone knows that I've been good in the sand. And, you know, mm-hmm. that weekend just went perfectly for me. Um, you know, I just, I think I was second or third in the qualifying race on Saturday. It rained overnight and I went 1-3 in the motos to win the overall. And, you know, we arrived at that race with my bike in the back of a camper van. You know, I'd been riding it during the week. It wasn't your mm-hmm. factory, all jazzed up, new stickers. It was like the bike was good, but it didn't look good to look at. And it was quite funny because Paul Mallon actually came up to us when we were taking the bike out of the 
out of the camper van on the Friday when we got there. And he says, uh, oh, so what's this then? The old practice bike? You know, which, <laughs> which anyone would have surmised looking at it. And we were like, no, nah, like this is the race bike. Like it doesn't look shiny, but it's dialed in and it's ready to go. And, you know, to stand on the top step of the podium with Caroli to my left, Strybos to my right, who you know, has openly said to me since then that he really thought he was going to win that day. Like those guys were on the pace and um, yeah, I'll never forget that. It was so, so special for someone like not on a factory team on a privateer bike to come from having a crap year to stand on the top step mm-hmm. of the podium. It was, yeah, it was the last TP of the year as well. It was, yeah, it was pretty special. I don't know about you, Darren, but, but, I can remember watching that on TV at that point and just being like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, where has he come from? Yeah. <laughs> well, not only that, I, could, I was shouting at the TV. I can remember watching it and just screaming, come on, come on, let's do it. But <laughs> just off the back of that then, Sean, because obviously you've so in-depth into what that, and we never get to hear about this from professional riders, which I think is always a great time. The guys out there I know listening will, will do. What was your first experience with the, the professional team like? Um, explain to us from your perspective. I know you've touched upon it a little bit now. Like pluses and minuses, especially going into your new team now, you can kind of judge it a little bit better, I guess. Well, I suppose just going back to how I was brought up, you know, I, I was never handed anything on a plate. So, you know, I was quite happy to graft, you know, the first few years of my career anyway. So I started in 04, 05, 06, 07, 2008. All of those years I worked on my own bikes with my dad and my brother. You know, they'd done the lion's share, but I was still spinning a few T-spanners, changed a couple of tires, you know, helped them put the on and up and down, traveled in the race truck. And lived in the race truck for you know six months of the season, so like I was quite happy to get my hands dirty. Then I signed my first factory contract for 2009 with KTM, and that was you know a massive learning curve for me because straight away I went and rented an apartment in Belgium because I had the funds to do that. And you know KTM was sort of saying to me, "Look, change your lifestyle, get more professional, train more, come with us, eat healthy, sleep right, you know, get things on track." and you know, anyone at 18, 19 years old would, you know, grab that with both hands. So I went into that, um, had a practice mechanic, uh, new tires for practicing, things like that. It was like, wow, this is just a changed world. And I absolutely loved it. And I relished the, the sort of opportunity. Um, unfortunately, a couple of, you know, difficult things happened to me. I, I um, broke my leg um half well not even halfway through 2009 um three races in it was um just after my first podium in 2009 um and that just sort of set the tone for the next two years so it was just difficult um but you know the differences between sort of doing it on your own and and having people doing it for you is you have all this extra time when you ride for a factory team which is good in one way but for myself and the way that I was brought up I think it was probably a negative for me because I just had too much time. So when I would get up on a normal day when I was grafting it out or, you know, when I'm doing it now with my own team, you know, you wake up in the morning with, you know, a list as long as your arm of what you used to complete that day. And that motivates me because, you know, I come in and tick it off my list and think, yeah, we're really getting some jobs done today. And, you know, I've got that to do. And then I've got my training to do. Then I've got to, you know, spend some time with Angus or whatever. And that that motivates me. But when, when I was a factory rider, I had this schedule of like, 12 hours to fill up and I only had three things to do in it so you ended up sort of Mm -hmm. you know having a nap on the couch at you know half past 12 one o'clock and all these all this weird stuff that you were told it was good for you and and for me it just it just didn't feel right and I, I felt like I had too much time and then and then on the flip side because I was having time off I, I felt lazy even though I knew I'd done my training in the morning so it was just it was a bit sort of I don't know it just didn't work for me um but on it works for some people doesn't work for others and I think you know the way that it is now for me with my team I'm I'm back to those old ways you know I'm back to actually grafting it out and getting it done and it just makes it all the more sweet when when you do get a good result and you know that the factory teams have you know so many more personnel working for them and so many more resources bigger budget and you can still do the same job on on a much smaller scale Absolutely ideal. That's an absolutely perfect answer there, to be fair. Um, 
So obviously we know you've got your own team set up now. Um, how how did this come along, then, mate? What, what what was it a forced decision, or is it something you wanted to do for a long time? How did it evolve? How did you all of a sudden have that brainstorming idea? Is you know what? Let's just do this. Um, I think you know it's going off the back of just all what I've talked about. You know, I, I just I wasn't feeling hundred percent happy with my bike. I wasn't feeling hundred percent happy with, you know, just the the amount of motivation that was getting um, channeled in my direction. Um, you know, it's quite easy for big teams with so many people in them to actually. Um, lose motivation for one of their riders although that sounds harsh um, a, a lot of big teams out there don't really like to say there's teams within the team but in my opinion there mm. has to be or there should be because you need someone at your side that's pulling 100% for you all the time whether you're riding crap or amazing and quite often what the position you get you find yourself in is you come in and you're complaining about something and you're not too happy with the suspension or the way the bike's power is delivering or something like that and they say yeah but it was okay last week or your teammates handling it okay and he's getting good results that for me straight away is a red flag it doesn't matter what anyone else on the planet does with a certain type of bike it has to be right for you and if they're not willing to then say to you you know I personally think if you come in and say I want to try the front wheel and the back of the bike then they should say let's do it you know like that sounds crazy but you really need to be that behind your rider and trust them that amount and I'm not saying that my dad does trust me that amount he still questions me when I come in and say you know I really want to try this yeah really but why you know but at least we chat about it and make a good informed decision going forward and that that those were the things that were annoying me and i just thought you know what i'm i'm getting offers from teams or the offers that i was getting sort of even down to were very minimal and it you know at at 32 years old with a family to provide for you know money is a big thing you know this is my job and people forget Mm -hmm. that and you you can think oh well I could go there and I could make that amount of money and at the end of it Rachel said to me you know it doesn't matter how much money we earn if you're unhappy we're both miserable it doesn't it doesn't make any sense she said I'd rather you went and we could just cover our bills just make 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 it work and you be mm-hmm. happy and and you know safe on your bike because there was times where I was coming in saying to Rach you know I, I don't feel safe out there you know I'm tr- I'm trying to go with those guys in front of me and I'm having to you know where I draw my line my limit these days you know and that gets a little bit lower every year as it, you know it's only natural to sort of after injuries and things to think you know I'm going to have to switch the throttle off where, you know, an 18 year old or a 20 year old, he just keeps it hanging on because he's, you know, just fearless. You know, if you're not safe on your bike, you can't go fast. And that's been absolutely crucial to what I've tried to do in my own setup is get the bike right and then get, Mm -hmm. then myself will follow. You know, I know I'll, I can follow if that you can come off the couch, like, not being 100% fit at all, you know, come off the couch. If your bike's right for you, you can ride fast for quite a long time. You know, you'll the last 10, 15 minutes of the race, you'll be absolutely hanging, but at least you feel comfortable on your bike. You can be fit as a fiddle, head to the gym every single day, you know, outrun anyone that you train with, mm-hmm. all of that. And then you get on your bike. If you feel a bit twitchy and the bike's not set up and the power is aggressive, you can't hang on to it. You're going to do 20 minutes and you're just, you know, you end up crashing your brains out. So it's, you know, my dad always said to me, people that get injured during a season, like he believes that like 50 to 60% of that is to do with the bike not being set up properly for him. And I totally agree. You know, years, yeah, yeah you're right. years that I've had good seasons and consistent years, I've felt so good on my bike. And, you know, the years that I've, I've felt really twitchy and, and, you know, then I've had injuries, you know, galore. So it was interesting, but, um, it, running my own team definitely didn't come um, from nothing. You know, I thought about it. Probably I thought about it for about 18 months before I actually just said, look, let's go for it. And I know enough people within the industry to to sort of rely on and um, personal sponsors that have been with me for a long time um, mm-hmm. and people that I knew I could motivate about doing this. You know, because when I approached companies and people that I knew, I knew that I could sell a, a good story but one that they would could be a massive part of, you know, so like mm-hmm. not a sponsor within a big team where you get lost, 
you know, like an actual part of my racing program. That was something special. And, you know, the guys that I've got on board, they've been, you know, absolutely phenomenal um, without those guys, you know, on my backdrop and, and everyone on my bike and, and helmet and race gear. There's just no way I could make this happen. So, you know, I was relying on them as much as they were relying on me to go out and do a good job for them. So it's been it's been a learning curve, but, you know, one that I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, but it's just not that easy sitting at home now, knowing that we should be out racing and, and doing a good job. And especially the way the year started with Hoxton Park and, and the other internationals yeah. that we've done then the first two GPs, it was all looking good. So hopefully we can get back to some uh, some racing later on this year. I just want to pick up on as well, your trailer, it got quite a lot of um, chat about it really at Little Silver a few weeks ago. Um, it doesn't yeah. look like your normal trailer. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. So basically, when we when we were like thinking about designing the team and and, and everything going into it, budget being mm-hmm. you know the main aspect of everything, you know, because everyone thinks right, let's get a race truck. Well, the budget that I'm having to work with, you know, that could be a majority of your budget blown there straight away. So that wasn't going to mm-hmm. be a smart decision. So we decided to go with a sprinter van, converted sprinter van, and a trailer. Um, because, you know, a converted sprinter van um, on its own just isn't enough space. A bare sprinter van on its own probably is enough space, but then you have to look for hotels and stuff for, for your mechanic to stay. Um, but my dad had decided, look, let's get a converted sprinter van with a trailer, and we just worked our socks off making that the best that we could. It has water tanks on it, whole charging system, um, generators, uh, you know, an inbuilt power washer um, system on it. So it's got all the bells and whistles for quite a low budget, um, all decked up with the same graphics on and everything as as the team sprinter and that way when we get back after a weekend we can unhitch the trailer and use the sprinter as our day van for going to the practice tracks or going to smaller race meetings and you know that's kind of how we decided to go about it and I think that was key in designing my own team I didn't want to be setting up this massive show every weekend mm-hmm. it's a very important to to keep your sponsors happy and put on a good presentable show for them but not one that that's taken over from the racing you know i, I want to go to the races to race not to put on a show in the paddock and then mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's what we decided to do. But Little Silver wasn't too handy for us with it being on grass and uh, the trailer weighs a little bit and the Sprinter van's <laughs> pretty much at its limit. So um, we got bogged down pretty quickly there. So jumping back to uh, the British stuff as well, obviously we didn't have, well, Little Silver didn't end up going ahead. Um, but how do you think sort of British MX is kind of moving with the times? Is it or are we kind of stuck a few years behind or how do you think it's going to go? I, I honestly think the British Championship, it has to still be regarded as one of the best in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. it, we have some a good pool of riders um, this year, especially I'm talking in the MX1 class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's Tommy, myself, um, Jake, we've got Bobby, um, who's doing the championship this year for the RFX mm-hmm. team. Um, there's Elliot, there's, there's you know, Jake Millward and, and all the rest of the guys, Harry Kulas. You know, some of those guys on any given day in Britain can be bloody quick. And, yeah. you know, there's, it's not like because I'm doing GPs, I'm going to come back and, and just be a, a league in front of everyone. I hope mm-hmm. that that could be the case, but it doesn't matter. It, you know, I remember back in my dad's day, he could be, you know, anywhere between five and eight seconds off of Dave Thorpe, um, you know, per lap at a world championship. And mm-hmm. my dad could be on the podium at British championship finishing not that far behind Dave Thorpe. So it, it just really levels the playing field out home advantage you know the, the guys who drive three or four hours from their house feel at home if they come to a grand prix they feel out of their league and that's just it's it's interesting to to see that how that goes but i don't know if for me personally being brutally honest having the youth at the same weekend as a, a british championship for me mm-hmm. it, it isn't the right way to go um mm-hmm. i thought about it quite a bit because you know, at Landrake last year, they tried it and it did sort of increase the amount of buzz that was there. But yeah, it, the atmosphere was great, wasn't it? Yeah. It, I, and I see what they were trying to do there. But on the, on the same, on the same, 
way. I just don't know if it's detracting from the best riders in Britain racing on a Sunday. And I, I, yeah. I think that maybe that isn't the right way to go. Now, there's pros and cons for everything because, you know, like I said, I did like the atmosphere side of it and having that extra buzz. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do feel like there, there's there's stuff to work on, but it's just so hard to keep everyone happy and to try and make the right decision. So I don't envy anyone that job of making the decisions going forward. But, you know, the, the position we're in now, um, we've got eight races to try and cram in before the end of the year. I yeah. personally think that a reduced series would be good for this year. And, and even going forward, a reduced series could be the way to go because it's just uh, you can maybe make more of a show at six races than trying to sort of string it along for eight or something like that. I honestly don't know. That's just me thinking off the top of my head as well because it's just so hard to make the right decision. Yeah. I know at the moment, obviously, with everything going on with the world, it's yeah. all a bit mad. Um, so how long we'll sort of be in this lockdown kind of quarantine period, we're unsure of. But um, how do you think that's going to affect sort of MX moving forward? Because obviously we're going to miss quite a few rounds now. GPs are getting pushed back. It, it just seems to almost like be right in 2020 off. Yeah, well, it, it's just... For me, the the worst thing about this whole situation is just the uncertainty of it. You know, mm. even even on a day to day basis, on those first few days before the lockdown was put in place, mm-hmm. the uncertainty of how much you should social distance. You know, what we should actually do. Me and my wife actually had some symptoms, so we actually self isolated for a few days before the lockdown started. And, mm-hmm. and going forward, everyone's talking on social media about how this could be locked down for way longer. You know, how we could you know extend this lockdown period and then you know the clubs and the organizing bodies are trying to postpone everything as long as they can but you know the gps is a 20 round series we're only got yeah we've only got two done so far so i can only see the next thing happening is there's going to be some of those being cancelled and worst case scenario we might not even have a championship this year to, to ride in you know that could mm-hmm. be a disaster but the main thing is everyone's safety at the moment i totally understand that but there there has to be a point where you know people are are sort of just in the dark at the moment and yeah the uncertainty for sponsors you know even just people sitting at home not being able to make money you know how are we going to rebound from that are people going to have the money or the want to go out and ride their bike um you know when these lockdown sort of times are are lifted you know that might not be their number one priority to go and shred motos <laughs> you know it will be mine <laughs> but you know most yeah. people are going to think all right let's try and make some money and get back on our feet here and see what's up so it could be dark times for 2020 and i just hope that you know things sort themselves out sooner rather than later I think just coming off the back as well with that, Sean, as well. I mean, I can only speak of it as a fan, as a commentator. Um, I mean, obviously, I love the sport and it's a fickle sport at best. Um, and the thing is, with extending the the period that we get in Grand Prix or the British Championship as well, it's a long season anyway. Um, and then you obviously you've got, you're trying to get 40 guys out on the line week in, week out, um, whatever affiliation you're in. And then all of a sudden, with a long process that is Grand Prix, if you get that injury, all of a sudden, yes, we know we've got wild cards and all that dropping in, but that field becomes a little bit more decreased. And then all of a sudden, the show isn't quite there. All the top riders are out for, for, for the Nats motocross in general. Um, but extending the other side of the designations and things like that with regards to contractual um bits and pieces that we've got going on. I mean, for you, that isn't a consideration this time because you run your own team. But how do you envisage that as a privateer now? How do you look at that logistically at the end of the year if they do bolt on these extra GPs at the end? Well, I think what they're what they're doing is postponing what's happening at the moment. And I think you can see that with what the government's trying to do by helping people out with, you know, money and wages and, and they're giving given back to to the whole of the UK. But at some point that will have to be repaid, whether that's with taxes or anything. Um, you know, so so what feels good now and feels like you're getting supported now is, in my opinion, only going to bite you in the ass, you know, in a year or eighteen months time. What that then does for the motocross side of things is is exactly the same. So they've postponed 
2020 in, right into November. Now, that's going to bring up complications for rider contracts and um, budgets. Um, like you say, 40 people on the line. You know, you have to think about in the UK, your top 20 are probably going to come anyway. And in, in, in uh, Europe and in the GP level, you know, your top 10, your top 15 guys are going to go. But how much want is there for those privateer teams and other riders, myself not included, because even if we go to some of these flyaways in November, I, I will be present at those because, you know, I want to be there and, and, you know, complete whatever whole championship there may be. But I just think they're going to fall into problems filling the gates, like you say. And also then we're going to have no off season this year running into 2021. So mm -hmm. we're, you know, riders are not going to have time to test with new teams. When are contra contracts going to have to be extended this year already? You know, most rider contracts finish at the end of October. Um, so riding right through into November, I just, I don't see, I just see a lot of small problems to get over um, and it, a knock on effect. You know, personally, I feel like the GPs start too early anyway. So I, I wouldn't have been opposed to the GP starting and, you know, end of March and running through till the end of October. But now running through the end of November, and then if you start at the end of February in 2021, there's going to be no down, downtime for the riders at all. You know, and everyone knows that you're supposed to take a certain amount of time off in the winter to let your body heal and recover and charge up for the next season. You know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you might see so you riders losing motivation and getting into burnout situations midway through 2021. So I just think we're kind of uh, prolonging the effects of a lot of things, you know, whether it's motocross orientated or, or, or not. Excellent. So... Let's get on to a little bit more positivity, shall we? We've had all the doom and gloom now, um, and we do this uh, <laughs> quite a lot um, on, on our podcasts, me and Soph. Um, positivity, let's have a look. Let's talk about 2020 that has happened already. I mean, I was very pleased to obviously commentate at Hawks and International. Um, now that you've had uh, a bit of time to react um, to your race results there at Hawkston and the early Grand Prix. I mean, taking the win over Jeff Lee early on in, in the uh, in the season so much. I mean, what are your thoughts now on looking back? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible, really, to to see you know where I was three weeks before Hawkston underneath a trailer, you know, freezing my nuts off, zip tying cables, and you know, doing all sorts of things to actually going out at Hoxton and thinking, right, this is the fun bit. Let's crack on and see how we can do. You know, it wasn't that I was underprepared or sort of, you know, taking Hoxton as a, as a joke. It was, you know, I was, I was going there and, and thinking I'd been that busy mentally thinking about so many other things that I'd forgot to get myself all nervous and worked up about the race. And I thought, here we are, let's go for it. And I just used that as energy <laughs> to sort of channel into my racing. And, you know, everyone knows that I ride well at Hoxton and, you know, the international for me has been good to me over the years. It's been bad to me as well. I've had a fair few injuries at Hoxton as well. And, but, you know, the condition suited me. Um, and, I made a good job of my starts. I was prepared and, you know, it it wasn't a major shock to me that I could beat Jeffrey. You know, like on any given day, you know, he's, he's one of the fastest guys in the world. But if he gets a couple of things wrong and I get a couple of things right, you know, I'm not going to be far away. And, you know, that, that was impressive for me and more impressive for everyone around me and the fans and and the sponsors because that's a big deal and looking back on it now it is and you know it's it's extreme circumstances but you know a win's a win and that's what people remember so I'll definitely take it and I think you've touched about um, and obviously if people have subscribed to your channel that you said about on YouTube um, they might have got a bit of an insight into this but this is where your preparation always comes up front. As you said on there, if you get your goggles sorted up front, your helmet, by the time, you know, you just, and, and I've done the same, I've, I've set my own business up recently and, and I was too busy getting everything ready for it. Come open day, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is actually happening now. And it's just that natural reaction where you just, your adrenaline spikes, everything's going. But at the end of the day, it's just you, your machine, and how you prepare is when you hit the floor running. And that just showed at Auction, I think, for me. I don't know what you think, so, but from trackside and commentary, absolutely awesome. 
superb results. And we just you just get excited because you just know, you know, if you can carry on that speed and, and, and style and and you just think, oh, this is going to be his year, you know. Um, that's the only thing I, I think to it. And and I know going into the early Grand Prix, it probably didn't pan out how you wanted it. There was a, a zero at the Dutch Grand Prix, and we know you go well there. Um, just, just from your point of view, what did you think was, was going on in the early Grand Prix? I think just the sheer scale of the or, or the sheer amount of riders that's at the GPs is is just phenomenal. Um, you know, we say it every single season, but with the age rule uh, being in the MX2 class and pushing the guys into the MXGP class, this year was exceptionally bad or good, whatever way you want to look at it, that there was, I think, seven riders from MX2 into MXGP, and those were seven good riders. Um, so the MXGP class gets stacked, and, you know, if you crash at the start of a club meeting you know nine times out of ten i could probably still win that race if you crash at a british championship at the start nine times out of ten you come back to the top five at a world championship if you start crash at the start now you're struggling to make points it, the field is that deep and i think that's what happened you know it's a 20 round championship with two races at each um, event that's 40 races if things don't go wrong for you at some point then you know you've you've been very lucky or you've you've managed to get yourself out of trouble every weekend and you know that the top five or six guys who can nail hole shots and get themselves out of trouble you know they're they're going to lower their odds massively um about getting in a first turn crash or any of those things but guys like myself who are aiming for somewhere in the top 10 we're going to be in those you know battles we're going to be in those moments where a rider behind thinks they're faster and they keybone you you know th those types of things don't normally happen at the front of the pack so you know what happened to me at the first couple of grand prix you've got to take on the chin um i crashed on the first lap at matterley and i crashed again and then i crashed again so you know i was lucky to come back to 18th the second race i, I rode quite a solid moto and finished 11th to be honest i was really happy with that we finished overall 11th on the weekend as well so you know that was that was one just to get us you know up and going my speed was quite good i felt good on the bike and it was all positives going into Valkensvard, as you say i ride good there and I'd really felt positive about the the whole conditions. You know, it was really, really wet. Um, I was never outside the top 10 all weekend. Um, it was just very unfortunate that I crashed and lost too much time in the first race while in fifth place. Um, yeah, even at 32, you make some stupid mistakes and uh, just come out of the corner, rear wheel just sort of jumped out of the little small rut that I was in and just sort of slid off the takeoff Um completely winded myself for what felt like an eternity and uh you know by the time i got back up and running um you know i was i was too far down the leaderboard to score any points but i did still finish the moto and then the second one bounced back with a fourth place so you know i was going to take weekends like that and i think the main thing for me that was the speed was there you know if i had scored 18 points on that weekend with you know a 12th and a, a 15th or, or or whatever the maths works out at a twelfth and a and a fourteenth or something like that, then I would have been more than happy with that. But to have a zero and a fourth doesn't sound too good because you say, oh well, you DNF'd him or you didn't score any points. But you know, if I average out at eighteen to twenty points a weekend, you know that's where I'm going to be thinking about the top ten in the championship at the end of the season. So. You know, it was only a small snapshot of what was to come. But for me, it was only positives because the speed was there and I felt good on the bike. And, you know, the, the fourth place in Valkensvard, you know, if that doesn't motivate you, then uh, not much will. So a few questions sent in um, from listeners this week into the Live Motocross website. Um, so first one, Sean, is, is there any tracks you miss on the British calendar and why? Oh, there's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going back a few years now, but there was a track down in Devon um, called Torrington that I really mm -hmm. um, enjoyed. Um, that one was on, on the calendar there a few times. Um, obviously, I'd like to see a couple more races up this neck of the woods. Um, I know we come up to Lucas a couple of years ago, but um, yeah, that's probably the only two. 
Only two? Yeah. <laughs> Sean, did you ever, or, or your dad or, or whatever, I know because I'm going back to the 90s, but it was my absolute ideal track and I wish every single year that we ever go back there. Can you ever remember Hatherton Hall and Antwich Club? These are a 125 Grand Prix there back in the 90s. That, to me, is one of the best motocross tracks on this planet. Um, but unfortunately, just lost to landowners or whatever else. It's just such a shame. Um, you you actually cut out there for a little second and I missed which track it was. I heard everything else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hatherton Hall, mate, in Nantwich. All right. No, I haven't been there. I've definitely heard of it, but I haven't. Um, I haven't been there personally. I'd have to look up a YouTube video of that one. I was going to say, I think probably your dad would remember. Yeah. I'd probably go around there. But I know it had a 125 Grand Prix there. It was absolutely amazing. So, um, There's like Far Farley Castle's obviously a majestic track, you know, in motocross history. But I haven't even rode or been there personally. Like, that's how shocking that is. <laughs> Have you not? No, ever? No. I've just oh, wow. I've done most of the European GP tracks and French internationals, but I've never been to Farley. Just the way it's worked out is just, yeah, I've not been. So... That one's got to be on the list. See, that was one of my first meetings my dad ever took me to at Farley. And I can remember we, we were watching Thorpey and everything like that going around, which was amazing. And I still, I'll never, ever forget it. But in the support race, Jeremy Watley, and if you look at it now, the jump off the top of the hill is absolutely nothing. But back in that day, it was huge. Yeah. They were landing three quarters of the way down there. And I can remember him doing no-handers and putting his hands on his hips and everything, every <laughs> single lap to the crowd. And I was just like, I'm signed up here. This is, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to get involved in. And, and I'll never, ever forget that. And I think it's those memories that you hang on to that you just think, yeah, do you know what? I, I just, I'm glad I saw it that day. Yeah. And everybody says about, I think that was the, the year that Joe Bay got beer spilt in his face and, you know, Thorpe went on and, and whatever else. But I remember Jeremy Watley just doing his thing off the top of that hill and they're just thinking, yeah, this is amazing. This is, this is so, so good. <laughs> nice you one. still do that now, don't you, on the mountain yeah. bike, Darren? Yeah, <laughs> no, I do. I try. <laughs> I just hit trees and things like that. That's a big struggle. <laughs> Uh, so question two, um, how frustrated were you at Desert Martin last year? Oh my God, that's a good <laughs> one. <laughs> I don't think there's been a day where I've, I've really felt like, you know, there wasn't just one ounce of luck um, on my side yeah. at all. You know, one, one DNF due to mechanical failure would have been enough, but to have a second mechanical failure, different mechanical failure in the second race yeah. um, on the same day, just, you know, nothing was going to be going right for me that day. So I am not one for throwing my, my, my toys out the pram. We just packed our gear up. Uh, we got Angus and my wife, Rachel, into the car and we just got out of the track as fast as we could um, after we said bye to everyone. And we ended up going to the Giants Causeway that afternoon just to sort of de-stress. But yeah, I don't it blame was, you. Um, I would have as well. <laughs> it was probably in 16 years of of sort of world championship and British championship racing. It's one of the most um, disappointing days of of my career. Uh, so moving on to a, a more positive note, I guess, on your questions this afternoon. Um, so this has been sent in. Uh, I have been doing motocross for a year and a half now. I would like to get better. So can you give me any tips? Well, I would just have to honestly say that if, um, if you can try and ride your bike three, three, four times a week, I think that's going to be, uh, going to be the the key there because obviously practice makes perfect and like i said earlier there's no there's no escaping you know getting your hours up so the more mm -hmm. that you do but obviously good practice is what you need to be doing so if your parents don't know exactly the right techniques or things like that then it's probably good to find someone at a local practice track that you can ask a few questions to a few tips after they've seen you riding and i think if you want to go to the next level which i don't always like to do um, too quickly is to you know do a couple of coaching days with someone you know mm -hmm. um because you know most of the time you can only coach someone who's at quite an intermediate level if they're able to actually follow the steps that you're you're trying to show them. You know, doing mm -hmm. that too quickly can sometimes be, you know, 
create an adverse effect. So I think that's the main things to try and get yourself a bit better. But if you've got the drive and determination to do it and you've got the facility to actually get out and do it, then, uh, you know, just being out there and, and practice makes perfect. You know, no one can score goals like the you know, the guys in the World Cup or in the Premier Premier League or Premiership um, without practice um, in football. So you can't expect to get on a motocross bike and be able to do all the big jumps and, and hit corners fast if you don't practice it. So unfortunately, it takes a lot of time. You know, there is a few people out there who can get on a bike and just be highly skilled straight away, you know, mm-hmm. just with natural talent. But I think practice makes perfect. And me personally, I have never been amazingly talented. You know, I've got no... I've got no um, quibs about saying that, you know, I've had to work for, for my speed and and even now, you know, scrubbing and all that type of things, you know, I'm I'm not the best at it, but I try, Mm -hmm. I try as much as I can to be better at it. And, and that's the sort of things that I'm working on still, even at 32, when I go out practicing. I just think that's a really humbling answer, to be honest with you, because, you know, for us, I mean, a lot of the times we put riders on pedestals and you just think, you know, they are, you know, you, and you deserve to be. You're at the top of your game. You're in the world championship. Um, but to hear you honestly and openly say that, you know, you have to still work at scrubbing and things like this. And um, I just wanted to come off the back of that question. We see a lot of these guys now, especially on, on board with the big teams, they have individual spots spotters going around. We see a MotoGP level and World Superbike and things like that. Does your dad help you with your riding technique does he go out trackside and watch you and say well actually you could be a little bit quicker here perhaps or your brake in there needs to be a bit deeper if he's watching somebody else how, how does that work does he do anything like that or occasionally he does yeah it, it, he's he's quite a sort of quiet guy and in, in the fact that you know if he spots something and he sees something he, he might just tell me straight and said look you're absolutely crap over there you need to sort that out <laughs> or, or he, might, he, he might say nothing but I think it's it's just nice to have a pair of eyes out there that's not going to bullshit you there's someone that's just going to say look I seen this I seen you were going inside and Crowley was taking that fourth line I don't know if it's any faster, but give it a go, you know, and, and sometimes you don't need to be, an, you know, a magician to, to be able to spot better lines or see what the better guys are doing. You know, if you're watching a guy that's riding in 10th place against a guy that's riding in first place and you say to the guy in 10th place, well, you're riding all the exactly same lines as Sean Simpson and he's just won the race then you just need to go a little bit faster in every single corner and every single jump. If you're taking all different lines on the track and someone said to you, well, try that, try that, try that, there could be a second or two to be had there. So sometimes it's not about, you know, the experience of the person that's giving you the knowledge. It's sometimes it's just having some knowledge and someone to give you those, you know, tricks. But, you know, it would be stupid if we come in from a race and, you know, nobody said anything to me about any lines or parts on the track. You know, I'm one of the first guys to come in and even ask my wife or my dad or a fan or, you know, a sponsor, you know, what line was that guy taking up around that corner or or did that guy do triple, double, single in the waves or how did it, you know, how did it work out? So, you know, knowledge is is power and I think, you know, you have to be asking yourself those questions and, and working on those weak points. Brilliant. Just goes along with your work ethic, really, mate. We can see, um, and I say it's humbling for me to hear that from you as well, because we just think, you know, it's going to come easy for you. You are Sean Simpson, you know, it, it, it's, but it's really not the case, is it? So um, it's really quite nice to hear those kind of things, to be fair, from, from an outsider. Yeah, I think, you know, it, I, I struggle to get out of bed as, as as most people do in the morning and motivate myself to get out there and do it. But I know that there's 40 other guys at world championship level that are getting out their bed and really grinding hard each day. So, you know, if you can't just make that little bit of sacrifice, get up, do your work, you know, do your training, then go to your, your, your actual job or your work if you're a normal nine to five guy or if you've got stuff to do on your bike. You can't just expect to, for it for it just to come. You know, you have to work on your bike and, like you say, be prepared. 
you know you see guys that just throw everything in a transit van and go racing on a Sunday and for for 80% of the, the, the public that's that's the enjoyment that's they've got that amount of time to give to it and you know I take my hat off to those guys because without those guys we wouldn't be going racing at the weekends because that's where sponsorship comes from we need those guys buying bike parts and clothing helmets goggles to fund the sponsorship for us to go racing but that 20% of people who are going to do it at some sort of high level you have to put work in otherwise the guy that's you know that you're sitting on the start line next to he's done a little bit more work than you and and that's why he beats you on a sunday there we are perfect way to answer that last question and and for that guy that's obviously put in there on through the website nothing else matters really other than yourself it doesn't matter what corona is doing in two particular bends does it all you've got to focus on is what you're doing in that moment in time. And if you can improve your time or your performance, then that's all that matters. Concentrating, concentrating on somebody else's lap times doesn't really, it's only a guide really. It's, it's all about you that is the big thing. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, where where Caroli might be faster than me, I, I might have a, two corners that I'm faster than him. So you know, you you have to work on your strengths and and not you know sort of play on your weaknesses too much. If you're really struggling with a section, just forget about it. Get through it the best you can, and the, the sections that you're enjoying, just try and nail them a hundred percent. Because where you lose a little bit of time, uh, you know, on one lap, you can gain somewhere else. And you know, I think that's the way to look at it. Don't don't get too technical about it. Just just you know, really work on the bits that you're good at, and and just sort of don't get too bogged down on on the areas that you're not. There we go. So that rounds up uh, episode two here at the Live Podcast with Sean Simpson and also Darren Bartholomew. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed it this afternoon. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What an absolute legend. I mean, we couldn't shut him up, could we, to be honest with you, once he started. <laughs> but, but no, it's just so good to have such superb feedback um, of such a highly talented guy. So um, thank you so much, mate, for your time. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for listening to me. And as I said, it's been my pleasure to be on. So thanks very much. There we go. So if you want to tune in and download any future episodes of the Live Motocross podcast, head over to Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, Acast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a subscribe.